Hello everyone, welcome to the latest instalment of the Witch Car Weekly Podcast. My name is Scott Newman, Associate Editor of Motor, and I am your host today. Thankfully, it's not just me, I am joined by the Brains Trust of Wheels, namely Deputy Editor Andy Enright. Hello. And the big boss himself, Alex Inwood, is back. Is that what my business card said? Yep, big boss. Big boss. Yep, has one of those cigars on it. <laughs> Hello, Scott, how are you? I'm well. How are we all? We good? Yes. Yeah. That's good. Plenty That's to talk about this plenty week. Plenty to Loving talk it. about. Yes. Today we're going to be mostly discussing the Frankfurt Motor Show, specifically some of the designs that have been revealed. But before that, let's talk about one of the hottest cars of 2019, a car we've all been driving the last week or so, the Toyota Supra. Mm, controversy. Controver- controversy. Controversy. <laughs> um, so, who wants to open it? Uh, Alex, open the bidding. What did, you th- what did you expect when you first drove this, before you drove the Supra, and what were your feelings when you started driving it? Well, I think I was actually quite well placed because, unlike everybody else on the universe, it seems, I didn't have any emotional baggage with this car. No. Because uh, it seems the internet is awash with people that think it's not a real Supra because it shares its underpinnings with the BMW Z4. <laughs> but I've never owned a Supra. I've never driven a Supra. I hadn't even sat in a Supra before I slipped nope. into this one a few days ago. I suspect all those people with their knickers and a twist on the internet also have not driven or owned a Supra. Probably not. But you, <laughs> look, you can understand why you know it's so close to a lot of people's hearts. It's, it's a, a car departure. that's a, it's at the very centre of um, Japanese car culture. And it's a big departure in terms of philosophy as to mm-hmm. what this car stands for. But in my opinion, I don't think anybody could say hand on heart that the Supra is anything but a very convincing sports car in its own right. Whether it's a real Supra or not, that's a, a separate discussion. Yes. But I think it is a very capable, very exciting, very interesting and surprising car. Yes. Okay. Uh, Andy, for the good of the podcast, you now have to totally disagree with everything Alex has said. <laughs> well, I, I normally do. No. No, he, no he's, he's got a point. Um, I'm old enough to have driven the previous Gen Supra. Um, and it, it was... The A40? <laughs> no, not that old. Um, <laughs> it, it was a good car. I'll, I'll give it that. But, you know, time has moved on. And I think people will be in for a rude awakening if they drove the A80 and the A90 oh, generations together. It, yes, absolutely. The, the new car would just demolish the old car in, in every conceivable way. I mean, the, um, the, 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 that's a really good point. In the, in the lead up to the Super coming out, people were all up in, up in arms. But the Supra was never, you know, it's this deity in Japanese culture, but it's because of its modif- it's all mm. the modifiers, kind yeah. of like top secret, like Jun, like, you know, all those guys. In stock form, it was kind of like a semi-luxurious, kind of fast, range-topping coupe. Like, I don't think it got you know, yeah, across-the-board slight... five-star reviews when it came out. Yeah, it was a slightly more senior 300ZX. Yeah. It was, it was a very good car, but it wasn't. And the expense thing, like people go, oh, I can't believe it's a hundred grand. Like, like the old Supra was expensive because it was the top of Supra sports car range. You know, you went MR2, Celica, yada yada yada, all the way up to Supra. So, yeah, um, I think people getting the knickers in the twist are a bit, yeah. a bit misguided. But, I think, uh, I think to enjoy it for what it is, you have to park all this. Is this a Supra? Is this a BMW yeah. nonsense? You know, you know, there's a lot of BMW on. Have you guys it. driven the Z4? No, I no, 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 me either. So I mean, we don't have a. That's annoying because we don't have a back-to-back comparison now. But um, well, look, 
we almost don't need to because if you were to close your eyes hmm. um, or be blindfolded or somehow get you around a racetrack where you don't have to look at what you're seeing, yep. a Supra feels like a BMW. There's yeah. inescapable DNA there. The engine is distinctly BMW. Mm-hmm. Um, even the way that the car smells, it smells like a BMW. The key is a BMW key. Yes. And look, you can understand why there's um, so much engineering and hard point transfer between the two cars that you mm. can't really engineer that kind of stuff out. So, I don't know. Yeah, it's a it's still a confusing car for me. It's a very good car. Yes. Yes. Toyota led us on a bit of a song and dance, didn't they, when they were developing that car, talking about you know how much scope they had to change it. And mm. when we looked underneath the two cars and couldn't tell them apart, we think, well, was there really? But... For what they've done, just with subtle things like uh, tuning bushes, that sort of yeah. thing, they have made the car feel, given it its own character. Yeah, I, I think, think for me the biggest thing is the steering. Like being modern BMW steering is usually quite weighty. You know, it can be a little bit mute. And I actually quite, I mean, I don't know your guys' thoughts at the moment. I quite like the steering in the Super. It's a bit lighter. It's uh, um, and I spoke to Tata Tatsuya Tata, who's the chief engineer, and without putting words in his mouth, he wasn't how can I say this he was probably keen to change BMW's philosophy on steering he was sort of went his own way with it um, which I think is the probably the biggest change between what makes it not a BMW like obviously you can't get around the engine the engine sounds like a BMW delivers power like a BMW but they have gone their own way a little bit with the chassis tuning and Alex you were saying like it's quite soft in its responses mm, it is surprisingly so it's much softer in terms of ride comfort uh, and tourability than I was expecting. And that's all, the car's all the better for it, in mm. my opinion. Um, we spent, Andy and I spent all day in the thing together, and it was a really long day. And I didn't start to resent the car in any way. I didn't have mm-hmm. a sore back. I didn't feel overly tired. Um, and there's something nice about a car that actually does have a little bit of roll as you start to push on yeah. a bit. You can wait for it to settle on the outside tyre. Gives you um, feedback. It does. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's real livability about, about the way it goes down a road. Mm-hmm. Getting into the thing, who who hasn't got into that thing and beaten their head? Yeah, I'm the only one. Oh, Weirdly, I don't know. Maybe I'm oddly proportioned. We had really short people doing it as well. Um, <laughs> and Scotty, uh, you mentioned this the other day. The wheel rim is that thinner because normally in a BMW it feels yes. like you're, you're you're choking Clive Palmer when yeah, you get hold of the steering <laughs> wheel, doesn't it? It's um, BMW's own. Uh, sorry, Toyota's own steering wheel rim. It's uh, the rim. The steering wheel itself is 373 millimeters in diameter, and it's thinner of rim uh, because again I asked about this I said was that specific he's like yes I don't understand really why they have these massive thick rims which was music to my ears because I keep banging on about that and yeah. BMW goes no there's nothing wrong with our steering wheels and some people like some people like a thick rim um, <laughs> on the rim <laughs> on the rim uh, but I'd prefer a thinner one every day I think now that I've spent um, quite a bit of time with the new Supra uh, I think the the final comment on this car might be it's one of those ones that gets better the more time you spend mm. in it. It's a bit of a grower. Yeah. has layers to its personality. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And I think that's great. If you're going to own the car, I you don't really want a, a two-dimensional car that you know yeah. you know everything about straight away. So no. that's a good thing. Especially, it's, I, was, I was the same. Like For me, all the hoo-ha around it, but you get out of it, you fang it down a good road, and you go, this is a lot of fun. It's fast. It's great to drive. It's I think it looks cool. Um, you know, box ticked. Well done. We need more cars like that. Mm. Yeah, we, we've put it up against two of its toughest competitors mm-hmm. for forthcoming issue of wheels. And 
I don't know, there's something about that car. It's got charisma. Every time you walk away from the three of them, it's always the Supra that you're kind of looking back towards and, and trying to get your head around. It's a really interesting car. I loved it. But one what? final point. Mm-hmm. I know that $100,000 is an outrageous amount of money to spend on a new car, but how spoilt are we at the moment for sports coupes yes. at that price point? Yep. Alfa Romeo 4C, Alpine A110, BMW M2 Competition, Audi TTS... Toyota Supra. Chevrolet Camaro. Camaro. Mustang's even cheaper again. Most of a Cayman. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, most of a Cayman. Yeah, most of a Cayman. Seven-eighths of a Cayman. Seven-eighteenths of a Cayman. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, (laughs) I don't think anybody should complain about the glut of excellent performance metal that we've got at the moment. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, check out... You can check out our reviews online and check out the Comparo in a future uh, future issue of Wheels. Also happening in a future issue of Wheels, Alex, it's going to be the design issue. Tell us all about this. That's right. It's a new thing for us. It's the first time we've ever done this. Um, So a large chunk of our next issue, we're working on it right now, um, is going to be dedicated purely to car design. Um, It's a really interesting time at the moment, I think, for car design. And a lot of us can get quite sniffy about car design because it's kind of this ethereal thing. It's a little hard to pin down. Mm. But... When you think about it, car design, more than kilowatts or engines or anything, is hugely important because how a car looks is often the biggest factor for when people go out to buy a new car. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, the the move towards EVs, different platforms. Um, Frankfurt has sort of thrown up a few surprises and some new directions that companies are going in. It kind of seems we're at this crossroads where everybody else is going off in different tangents and we're getting lots of interesting, weird-looking polarizing, divisive things. Uh, so we thought it was time to sort of pull it all together, get um, Ian Callum on board, uh, the JLR design director who has just moved on but sort of transformed JLR's design direction over the better part of 20 years. Yeah, and Aston Martin. And Aston mm-hmm. Martin before that, and a stint at HSV before that. Yeah, yes. TWA. did the, what, the interior bits, I think, on a, the GDSR, the VS right. GDSR. Yeah. So Car- he's, he's on board. Carbon look stuff. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> He's on board to um, guest edit the, the section, which is really cool. It's great to have his involvement. Um, so, yeah, I think it's going to be a really interesting look at all facets and what goes into actually making your car look the way it does. Yeah, Andy, uh, without giving away too many secrets, you had a bit of a chat with Ian Callum. Did you, did, what, sort of, what did he have to say about the future direction and what electrification may, what opportunities electrification may open up in the future? Ah, he was he was pretty candid. Um, I, I called him at home whilst he was waiting for the washing machine man to come and and uh, repair oh, really? his his unit. Um, and uh, so he was strolling around in his dressing gown. And he was very chatty about uh, about electrification. That but, sounds like a plot to an adult movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel but, Gardner wouldn't have left that one. Yeah, he, he, um, the the gist of his his talk basically is no matter what the platform that you're working on, whether it's an internal combustion engine or an EV or Good design is good design, mm-hmm. uh, and and it rewards, you know, thinking about and understanding the use case for these vehicles. Um, what was intriguing was that he said that at JLR, the designers got in on the process of the vehicles of these EVs early and could dictate the form factor of these vehicles. Mm-hmm. And then the engineers would then package the stuff around that. So it had the... For example, in the I-Pace, this lovely cab forward look. It looks like nothing else on yes. the road. People look at it, oh, wow, look at that thing. Um, but he says, you know, other marks, other German marks take Mercedes, as a, for instance. He said with Mercedes, the engineers get in first, and they, they put all the 
stuff. And said, oh, we got a space under the bonnet where the engine was. Let's fill it full of inverters and this, that, and the other. Yeah. And then say close that, and that's probably why the Mercedes EQC looks so conventional. Looks it's like the, looks uh, like a GLE. It's the continual struggle, I think, at any car company between yeah. the three pillars. You got design, you got engineering, and manufacturing. Yeah. So you know you've got to be able to make it look good, but also make it feasible and, and make it as well. yeah and make yeah. it and make it actually sell yeah. so uh so yeah there are two very different approaches um i'm not saying one's better than the other one because for some people they want an ev that's non-confrontational and looks like something they've had before just with an electric powertrain mm-hmm. um but the challenges involved with with designing an ev and understanding that the way that the market is moving are, are enormous and he was saying that this presents you know, to some designers, it's a huge challenge. It's a threat. Whereas the smart designers will see this as an opportunity mm-hmm. to to really make their mark in the industry and and change the design language going forward. Well, let's a, let's use that as a springboard into some of the cars that we saw the future looking cars at Frankfurt. Frankfurt Motor Show has happened over the last couple of days. What's well, still happening, but the press days where all the new models are released have happened over the last couple of days. Uh, and let's start with Mercedes. You brought up Mercedes, so they unveiled the Mercedes EQS concept which is kind of a forward-looking version, Mercedes says, of an electrified S-Class, sort of. Is that is that a fair assumption, Alex? Do you want to take the baton on that one? Yeah, I think it is. I think um, it's a really striking concept car to look at. It's quite, um, oh, they won't thank me for this, but there's almost a little bit of a Tesla Model S or Tesla Model 3 silhouette <laughs> to it, but it's... Um, it's very distinctive Mercedes-Benz at the front. It's quite soft and round and gentle in terms of um, its front and rear treatment. But I think it looks quite striking. I think the proportioning mm. on it is quite nice. Um, I hope the production version is is similar to it because, as Andy mentioned before, the EQC, their first electric car, the SUV, was quite conventional. Looks just like a normal Mercedes-Benz SUV, but this one's quite different. Mm. Um, so so I reading, between they... the li- reading between the lines, it seems like the new S-Class isn't that far away, and then the EQS may come as sort of like a bit of a spin-off for maybe those, maybe those you know, uh, early adopting sort of tech people, which isn't necessarily an S-Class buyer. S-Class buyers tend to be quite traditional. Mm. Uh, so maybe that's why they have this EQS to then appeal to those people who want luxury but also want to make a statement in terms of style and design. It looks a bit like an electric suppository. But, uh, really? Yeah, it's, it's, it's full it's, of wisdom. It's, or? Got, it's got that <laughs> slippery look to it. But uh, no, it's. Uh, I, I, think, thought, I felt I, bad thinking it was going to saying it was going to sort of look reminds me of a whale a bit, not in a bad way, but you know, like that sort of sleek, large kind of shape. It has like got a it. little I bit like of an it. original Porsche Boxster about it, as in you don't really know if it's moving forward or moving backwards, <laughs> coming or going. <laughs> yeah, no, there's something quite cool about that car. I liked it, and they they really kept that one under their hat pretty well, didn't they? Yeah, yeah they, they did. did. Yep. Um, I mean, that's for me. I've never understood why. EVs didn't start in the luxury segment. I think I've said this before, but you know, cost is less of an issue. Cost is less of an issue. Weight is less of an issue. You provide silent running. You know, you get ride advantages. I always sort of, you know, I suppose it's driven by the market. But why isn't the S class already electric? You know, it's uh, anyway. We'll f- we'll find out. Do we think that EVs actually offer the opportunity to be radical, as radical as we all hope or think they might be? Or are EVs, look, they're going to be different around the edges, but fundamentally cars are going to continue to look the same as they have for the past 50 years as they are for the next 50, do we think? Or are we going to see radical changes? 
No, I, th- I think we will see changes, especially around autonomous vehicles, because that will come. It, you know, it's not going to come as soon as many people think it's going to happen. But, you know, last year we saw some amazing concepts from Renault, mm. and they were just like these beautiful spaces. That's that's the best word I can describe. It's like in a moving apartment almost. Yes, yeah, they, they were absolutely stunning. And you just look at that and think, yeah, I'd I'd love to go to work in that now. You know? <laughs> They're decades away, aren't they? Like we're talking decades. Well, here. Toyota is having going to have a fleet of AVs, as they call them, autonomous vehicles, on the road for the Tokyo Olympics. Uh, I'm sure they will go along very prescribed routes. Um, oh, actually, the other thing is they're going to uh, accompany the torch runners. You know, if, before every Olympics, they carry the torch to the stadium, and there's going to be apparently autonomous vehicles guided alongside them. Um, and they want to have their first autonomous vehicle on sale in Japan by 2025. Again, there's a real... You've got to be careful with, the auto- uh, careful with the terminology here because if it runs on a prescribed route like a tram, well, technically it's an autonomous vehicle if there's no one driving it. But it's not autonomous in the sense that we think. You can just get in it, press a button and go to work on your usual route. I think, yeah, I think that in, in terms of... Um, being able to switch off the driver completely, like it may never happen from what people are saying now. The challenges in getting level five autonomy off the ground are just so big that it may never happen. But um, I think we'll see more and more and more driver assistance to the f- to the point where certainly on freeways and highways you can effectively sort of switch off, but there's always going to need to be a human element, I think. Hmm. So anyway, we got a little off track there. We so did. we've had one Frankfurt design that we all kind of like. Yes. Uh, let's go to the, another electric car, the Volkswagen ID3. Super important car, this one. Mm. And he's the only person the bidding on the ID3. Why is it so important for Volkswagen? Volkswagen have really uh, gone large on this one, haven't they? They said mm. it's like the the ID3 suggests it's the third car, like iconic car in their history after the Beetle, the Golf, and now this. So mm-hmm. that's how important it is to them. And I think it looks fantastic, to be Me honest. Too. I think I think it looks really good. It, it, that's, that's a good point of taking like your established design of a hatch, but making it in a way that goes... No, everybody looks at it and still goes, wow, that's cool. It's the little details like the wheels and the proportions and stuff like that. Alex, you like it as well? I think it looks great, but it's underneath that's kind of more important, yes. isn't it? It's an all, new plat- yep, all new platforms going to spin off. How many EVs is Volkswagen doing in the next... Oh. It's like 2025 or something, yep. I think. Even Ford's going to have a car on it. Yeah, wow, interesting. Yep, It'll be enough to make you forget about diesel. Yes, that, well, they, that's what they hope with their brand new logo that yeah. uh, promises what transparency and honesty and all that sort of thing. And I read an interesting thing about that this morning, like the work in uh, putting a new logo out. You said there's something like 10,000 dealerships, all the brochures, all the uh, signage, all the post um all the uh you know billboards and everything and not to mention all the cars now need a different logo on them so it's actually a huge huge undertaking some of the chat around this id3 has been really interesting i think you know people are suggesting that in 10 years time the answer to the what car should i be question instead of being or what car should i buy question sorry instead of being a volkswagen golf is this going to be a Volkswagen ID3? That's yeah. the car that you should buy. That's Essentially, like it will be the default choice. You know, I suppose in maybe not, you know, Mark 8's just around the corner, but maybe Mark 9 and Mark 9 Golf and ID3 become one and the same a little bit. Um, it's interesting you bring up the, the, the Golf, though, because personally, 
Uh, looking at the projected pricing for the ID3, it starts at about thirty thousand euros, I think, which is about fifty grand. Um, so if that pricing carries over when it comes to Australia in twenty twenty two. So you'll have a range of electric cars starting at 50 grand, which is a problem because you'll in the showroom next to it will be a Golf, which effectively does the same thing. Presumably there'll be a hybrid one maybe that does two litres per 100k or something. Why would you then go and spend 20 grand more on a car that sort of does the same thing? It's a good point. And I don't think Volkswagen's really making that car for the Aussie market, to be no, fair. No, it's not. It's I think not. what... Uh, but although that... the point would remain in Europe. like the, you know, it's, it's better over there, but still you've got to... A very similar car that is a lot cheaper. You're really going to have to have a yeah, but you have a lot more incentives over there, don't you? you yeah, that's tax the breaks. Thing. You have yep. actual incentives to buy the car, um, none of which we have here in Australia. And interestingly, I had a meeting with the FCAI um, last week, and they campaigned for these kind of things, like removing the luxury car tax in Australia, and really trying to lobby the government to get some kind of incentive to get people to invest in these EVs here in Australia. And they were making all the right kind of noises, but when you really drill into it, it they're really facing an uphill battle, those guys, I think, and yeah, girls, to yeah. try to get the pollies to sort of commit to any kind mm. of incentive or any kind of cash or even tax breaks yep. around EVs I mean, here in this eradicating country. Eradicating the LCV on electric vehicles would seem to be a no-brainer because suddenly you'd have cars like the EQC or the e-tron, which are going to come here shortly, and there would be a viable alternative then to your regular Q5 buyer or um, GLC, GLE buyer? Because at the moment, they're going to be, you know, 150, 160. They're a sort of niche niche product a little bit. But if they were 100 grand or 110, then, you know, they are a, a direct alternative to a regular petrol-powered car. Yeah, we're always going to be an outlier, though. You know, yeah, we are. big distances, yeah. very expensive electricity, very cheap fuel. Those three things combined um, make it quite tricky. Mm-hmm. But it'll come. You know, I was out with Volvo yesterday, and they were telling us that there's going to be um, an EV version of the XC40 at the end of next year, quarter four. No. So, you know, slotting between an iPace up there and, uh, and a Kona Electric down here, good well, place in the market. You've only got to look at the product rollout. That's, yeah. it's, it's no longer a trickle. It is a tidal wave. Yeah, we've yeah. got EQC, we've got e-tron, we've got ID3. Um, all of the major brands are rolling out their pure EVs. Um, so Tesla hasn't got the road to itself anymore. No. Although and it must be said, the Model Three is selling its its behind off, especially yeah. in Europe. So, although it's consequently that led to a big drop in sales in the US. So I don't know how they're going, but yeah, I mean, that, I mean, Tesla proved that it works. Tesla gave everyone a massive kick up the behind to show that stop sitting on your hands. And Dieselgate obviously helped as well because <laughs> it forced yeah. VW's hand a bit. But yeah, you're right. It is coming in. The coming sheer in. weight of product yep. is enormous. Mm-hmm. It's interesting what you were saying about ID3 as well because, you know, at the moment, electric cars are these kind of early adopter baubles over here in Australia yes. at least. And is it going to come to a point where, I guess it will, the, the EVs are the things that the mainstream have and an internal combustion engine car like... You know what we see, like a Golf R today, is going mm. going to be the niche boutique thing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I expensive. Think, yeah, eventually, yeah. it might be twenty thirty or something by the time it happens, or yeah. twenty thirty five. But yeah, it will happen. Uh, let's move on to another another Frankfurt Star. This one is conventionally powered, but very much uh, fits with our design theme: the new Land Rover Defender. Mm. There's probably, in terms of design for Mr. Jerry McGovern, there probably hasn't been a bigger job for many decades in terms of replacing, what, a 60-year-old icon? So, Andy, you're a 
originally a Brit. Um, so you're probably closer to home with the whole defender thing and the love for the defender. Although they, you know, they're very beloved out here in Australia. What are your thoughts on the new defender? Um, well, the old defender um, offer a contrary view. Um, I hate the bloody thing. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've never, never gone for any uh, drive in one of those over about five kilometres where I haven't injured myself or torn my clothing in some some way. No, I, I just I can't be doing with them. They're outdated. They're outdated. Well, now you've there. got a defender for you. It's a but, defender, but it'll accommodate. And I quite like the look of it. I have to say. Um, I like the form factor of both the 90 and the 110. I love the fact it's on steel wheels. How cool do they yeah. look? Um, <laughs> that yeah. green paint and white steel. Yeah. Is yeah, full think, UN spec. Yeah, this, this, awesome. could, this could have promise, I think. Yeah. They should offer, I mean, this, a stalwart of the uh, Australian Defence Force was camouflaged 110s for years and years and years, years decades. Um, so there, yeah, they're missing a trick if they don't offer a camo option in Australia. Mm. I think I'm a bit of an outlier here. I must be the only murdering journalist on the planet that doesn't really get the whole defender thing. No, I don't get it. Either. Like I've never driven one. I sort of, I sort of get it in that it's a useful tool. I don't see why yeah. you'd ever want to drive one. I can like, kind of appreciate that it's a bit of an icon. I, I, you know, I think the styling's quite cool. It's a very distinctive shape, but I have no desire to buy one or drive one. Or from all reports, they're actually a bit rubbish and a bit yeah. unreliable. There's but... a guy. There's a guy who lives near me. He's got. Three, they've got a special name for them. I can't remember what they're called, but they're the military spec ones. So they've just basically a cab and then a big tray where you usually put troops in, and then they sell them to civilians. He's got three of the things. And like, <laughs> well, that's what, that's the Defender buyer, isn't it? They are like the uh, Teslarati. Yeah. Um, they are so passionate. Um, and again, this new one's kind of got them in two camps a little bit. There are those people that are saying, that looks rubbish, I hate it, it's not a real Defender. Yeah. And there are other people that think it's great. So, got a bit of nine eleven syndrome here. I think you know, there's those people mm. who think that no, n- there's no no such thing as a water cooled nine eleven. <laughs> you know, it, it ended with the nine nine three, whereas nine elevens have actually been really good for the whole time. Um, and I think it's the same now. Like, I think I think they've knocked it out of the park. Like, it's for the people who are going to buy it now to drive to work, to drive to school. You know, they want to make a statement. They want to buy a Wrangler, maybe, but this will be a presumably be a lot. Uh, more gentrified, you know, it's just going to be a discovery platform, I think. Um, is, is Jerry McGovern forgiven for the discovery? For the wonky number plate? <laughs> oh, I don't know. You might have cankles. That's a car with cankles, isn't it? For the <laughs> no, you had a bad day at the office then. Yeah. yeah. But we like, so we like the Defender. Defender yes. gets a tick. Yep. Yep. Big tick. Big thumbs yeah. up. Yep. Would you have a 90 or a 110? 90. 110 for me. I think I'll go the 90 as well. Just the cool short wheel baseness of it. Uh, let's move on to. Oh, this is a good one. So, we've talked about some good design. Let's talk about some, in our opinion, for whatever we know, iffy design. If BMW's designers will disagree, <laughs> what the hell were they thinking with the front of the new 4 Series? Oh, well, officially it's called the Concept 4, Yes, isn't it? There's still yes. time. <laughs> There's still time to fix it, BMW. Yeah. Please don't let that hideous... I mean, you say that, but it's interesting. Like, There probably isn't, because say the new 4 Series is, what, six months away? Like, they would have started tooling, they would have signed off the production cars, surely, like... Well, the silver lining here is, for those that haven't seen this car, please get to a mobile phone or go to Google right now Mm. um, and look for an image search, because it's a little hard to describe, just imagine a normal 4 Series, or quite a nicely proportioned 4 Series, um, with nice surfacing and detail, but just with an enormous, angry pair of flared nostrils stapled to the front of it. It's got like the full Voldemort face, just a pair of, not even that, because that was just slits, it's just like... 
Oh, God, it's awful. And that's the thing. Like, 98% of that car, I think, is beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Rear three-quarter profile, rear. You look at it's it and go, really wow, that's thing. not... You really, you really have made the 4 Series sleeker and more uh, aspirational, which I think they wanted. And then you come around to the front. Like, we got a bit of a warning on this because there was some renders done by a BMW blog showing the new M3 and M4 with this massive grill. And you went, oh, you know, some person's, like, stayed up too late and lost, their, lost their marbles. <laughs> And then they've gone and done it. It's just, it can't make production, can it? Like, Oh, God, probably can, actually, yeah. because we all thought it couldn't get any worse after the X7 and the X5's grills. Um, but it has. They've yeah. done it. Uh, it um, it's it's awful. I think I think at one stroke, the, the 4 Series has gone from probably BMW's prettiest car to to its most horrendous. I mean, they, the... They, the, the, the to, to defend BMW, they say the rationale is it harks back to the 328, which had this big vertical grille, which it does. Um, but I mean, they did a 328 homage concept, which looks beautiful, which incorporated these vertical grilles. Mm. This is not a good, in, not a good. Uh, in, it doesn't incorporate it well at all. Um, and they say, if, you know, we'll get used to it. And I do wonder if, you know, five years' time, we look at it and go, oh, it's not that bad. But I don't think so. I, no. look, look, I know that um, design is very subjective, but... I really fear that BMW has lost its way a little yeah. bit at the moment. I think we will look back on this in 10 years' time and just be like, you know, we all thought at the time that the Bangle era was a disaster, mm. but oh, bring back Bangle, I say. Yeah, they've aged Yeah, E65 well. yeah. wonderful now. Yeah. Although, I mean, on this car's sort of design feature as well, like, that's part of the problem is if it had that grill on, like, maybe an X7 or something, you'd go, whoa, but... It's it's an ostentatious car. It's you know it's out there. It wants to make a statement. Whereas the rest of this four series does look sleek and beautiful, and then it looks like it's been punched through the face with knuckle dusters, <laughs> and it's got these awful big yeah, holes. In I, it. I think the whole point of of an homage vehicle is to take the elements of the old vehicle and just modernise them in a sympathetic way. And you leave aside the things that didn't work. You know you wouldn't put a new four series on bloody cross-ply tires no or, or 12 inch wheels good or something like that um you, you you've got to leave those bits behind that don't work and this manifestly doesn't work it's it's an awful looking thing you've got to give credit to bmw for wanting to be distinctive to be different mm. to their german counterparts but look this is a brand that we all care deeply about anybody yeah. that um was who grew up in the 70s 80s or 90s has a real affection for bmw um, i think everyone in this room yeah, off the car. It's, it's, a, it's a brand that's really close to our hearts. It was yeah. during our formative years as um, motoring enthusiasts, which is why when you see cars like this, it really does shock you and, and upset you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because to put, you want it to be beautiful. Yeah. And to put it into perspective, BMW have designed 98% of a really, really good looking car. Yeah. Please can just fix the grill. Yeah, can you just do something? The thing about that it? reminds me of is the Bentley EXP9F or whatever it was, aka the Bentayga concept. Remember that came out? Oh. And everyone else, and everyone basically threw up in their handbags, and it was it did necessitate a fairly hasty redesign, I think, for the production car. So this is even better because, like we say, we've got so much of it right. Just if you, I need someone to get a render and just render the normal three series grill on that Concept Four, and I bet you it looks stunning. Yeah, it will. Yeah, I don't, more generally, the design direction that we're going in. I thought we were heading in a, me personally anyway, I know the design is, is a very individual thing, but for a while there it looked like we were heading in a nice direction where cars were getting less and less lines, they were more sort of confident um, in their surfacing, but now everybody seems to be adding creases, adding lines, instead of taking them away, 
Um, everything just seems to be getting very angular, very fussy, very busy. Um, and for me, it just feels like we're heading down a rabbit hole that I hope we can escape out of pretty yeah, quickly. Um, Callum said an interesting thing. Um, I said, are people de- more design literate now? And he says, oh, yes, absolutely. And that varies. They're very design literate. But whether their taste is in keeping with where I think their taste should be or where other people <laughs> think their taste should be is another matter. So I guess he is feeling slightly unsettled with some of the directions that this design is going in. Well, let's close off with a couple of uh, a couple of interesting cars. Firstly, because I want to pick up on your point, Alex, uh, let's have two extremes. One is, I'm going to just mention the Alpina B3 Touring. A, because mm. that's... Alpina does, money. Alpina does understated quite well. We've got, it's basically a normal 3 Series in a nice colour, those beautiful turbine alloys, uh, almost the opposite of the you know the front of that Concept 4. What's also interesting about this car, which I want to get your thoughts on, is it's got the S58 in it. So Alpina has got the new M3 engine in it, about a year before the M3 gets the M3 engine, which yeah. is remarkable, I find, because they've traditionally Alpina's not sort of been allowed to touch it. That um, Andy, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, we um we had a chat with some people from Alpina, and we realised that uh, Buchlow is is working a lot more closely, working hand in glove with BMW these mm-hmm. days. It's it's a really really close relationship that they have, but uh, I. I adore that car. I think yeah. it looks fantastic. It's the M3 wagon that yeah. BMW won't build, isn't it? But yeah. uh, is this... I've got a question for you guys. Is this a car for motoring journalists? <laughs> and motoring journalists only, is anyone going to buy this? Uh, in Australia, they'll probably sell five, maybe ten. <laughs> I mean, I, um, lots more people will buy that new Alpina XD3 SUV. Um, yes. But uh, the thought of this car, it'll, you know... Having driven some Alpinas, they sort of focus on a bit more ride quality and looks fantastic, will be comfy, will have beautiful torque. Oh, I love that car. I think that logic, Andy, is something you could apply to almost every wagon these days. (laughs) Sadly, Uh, I think, you know, we've been arguing to our faces of blue that a wagon, you know, is better in an SUV in every way, but people just keep going and buying SUVs, so... yeah. So let's close with the exact opposite of the understated Alpina, the Lamborghini Sian, mm. which has now been changed, its name changed to the Lamborghini FKP Sian in honour of Ferdinand Karl Pieck. Um, so there you go. A nice tribute from Lamborghini, I suppose. Uh, I like that. Yeah. So one thing the Sian is not is understated. Uh, Lamborg- <laughs> nor should it be. It's a Lamborghini. No, no, it's a limited edition Lamborghini. Well, you say that, but for me, one of the prettiest Lamborghinis was the first Gallardo, which was, and you know, the first Countach was quite understated. It was an out there shape, but very clean surfacing, very sort of few creases like compared to, say, you know, some of the Huracans or the, some of the Aventadors that came later. Correct. The detailing was very restrained mm. on an original Gallardo. Yeah. I think mm. that's, you look back on that now and it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I sort of agree with you. Like a 63, they're going to build 63 of those. You've got to catch the eye of the world, I suppose, billionaires, tech billionaires, internet billionaires. Uh, it, it is a, if it wants to make a statement, it certainly makes a statement. But Lamborghini finds itself in a little bit of a funny place, doesn't it? But um, it's a, is it a supercar manufacturer in, in, a, in a world where people want hypercars? Yeah, um, yeah. I I quite like the look of this vehicle. Uh, I, I hated some of the others. Of, the Veneno. The Veneno. Oh. Oh, no. <laughs> but no. what's a supercar and what's a hypercar these days? That line is yeah. becoming increasingly blurred. Like a Sian, 
for me, that's a hypercar. Surely it's going to be mm. a squillion dollars. It's going to have a super capacitor, so it's going to have electricity supplementing its V12. Um, I don't know. How do you yeah define those segments these days? It's kind of. I mean, from following some of these people on Instagram, it sort of doesn't matter. Like they buy everything. Like the people who are in this in this stratosphere for the Yescos and the Chirons and the Cyans, they've got warehouses full of like 80 or 100 cars. So it's kind of, they just, I don't know what they do, I don't know what they do with them all, but presumably look at them or take them out once a week or I'm not sure. But um, what do we think of the supercapacitor idea? So that sort of came out of left field. We were like, how was Lamborghini going to incorporate electrification into the Aventador and its next in its next future car? Um, I don't quite know how it gets around future legislation because it doesn't really have an EV mode per second park in EV mode but doesn't really can't do 30Ks I don't think in EV mode so how do you feel about this solution? Well firstly are you a, are you well placed to explain to all of us what a supercapacitor is and how it differs from a traditional battery slash motor? I wouldn't say I'm well placed but I'll give it a bash. Please do. So the fir- I first heard of it uh, I think Williams first ran it in the F1 as part of a Kurs system but then the Toyota Le Mans car, I think, also initially ran supercapacitors. So I can't tell you the technology, but essentially a supercapacitor is can, I think, discharge and recharge very, very quickly, but it can't hold much charge. Like you can't put 600 Ks of range in a supercapacitor. What you can do is, like the Lamborghini does, it will basically fully charge um, once you hit the brakes. So it will give you all it has every time you hit the brakes, and then it can discharge that immediately to give you a massive power boost. So great solution for like a sports car or a racing car. That sounds brilliant. Yeah. Um, yeah, because you've always got that power yeah. then. Because yeah. Imagine coming out the other side of a corner. Yeah, it's I know. And the really, I think I mentioned it last week. The good thing is, you know, you, you've driven an Aventador, Alex. I have. Yes. Been lucky enough to. And Andy. Yep. So the big thing about the interval, you get that awful like punch in the back with a the gearbox or the big slow shift <laughs> Corsa. Yeah, yeah. yeah whereas this apparently torque feels it it gets rid of it so so claims lamborghini so you've got a almost a seamless shift of Ventador and with the power it's got it will be phenomenal so um right, that's going to be exciting and you're right there's a lot of car to hurl around yeah and like you say it's um it's all focused on uh sort of in-gear acceleration it's something like 30 percent faster than an svj from you know certain increments like 80 to 120 or 80 to 150 or something which is very cool so for lamborghini and it's presumably the tech is available to porsche or whatever in that family like it's very very cool are they going to be an outlier or is this tech going to trickle through to other brands i guess we'll have to see that's, what it's uh, like to drive yeah that's really interesting yeah. because uh porsche just took a bigger share in remac as well last yeah, week yeah they're sort of so, nailing uh, the thing to the yeah battery yeah that, that, that group is uh there's a bit like going forward some good tech the supercapacitor thing is hard because it's hard to see so the next aventador for instance will presumably have to have an ev only mode of some description in case of you know legislation or something like that or even to just bring its uh, average emissions down Whereas this isn't really suitable for that application. So it will be interesting to see whether they can do a bit of both or they stick their mask to one thing or improve the technology. I'm not sure, but we'll... It's, it's, it's exciting to see supercars and hypercars. They're meant to be test beds for future technology and they have kind of done that. Like, it's not... There's nothing else like it. So, well done, Lamborghini. Uh, we need one in the office to have a good uh, poke around and play with, I think, to see if this works. Yeah, you seem to have a high hit rate at getting uh, supercars <laughs> as long-term as any. Yeah. So... Uh, <laughs> Please send off an email. (laughs) All right. Uh, Any final thoughts on the Frankfurt Motor Show, lads? It's just good to see a motor show that has uh, a lot of really interesting product again because 
feels like almost a year now since we've actually had a show where we all sit up and pay attention. They've mm-hmm. kind of faded from relevance a little bit, but this one's kind of back on form. Yeah, we've had a couple of Mori Bun shows and this one looks like a belter. It's it's great to see real energy back in the car business and that's what we've seen in this show. That was a good pun there. Energy. Energy. Ah. On that punny note, uh, we'll sign off for this week. Uh, Obviously, you can check out all the Frankfurt News reviews, coverage on www.witchcar.com.au Follow us on all the various social media channels. Go and buy a magazine because magazines are cool. And uh, we'll see you next week.